Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, I'm excited to bring you a wonderfully inspiring conversation with poet, fiction writer, and educator, Mimi Herman. Before we get into that, however, I want to give a heartfelt, gratitude-filled shout-out to some of the incredible supporters of the fundraiser we're doing for Jesus Pancake. I also want to encourage you, yes you, to contribute to our Indiegogo campaign to make that original nine-episode audio series. See links in the show notes for more information. Here's a big giant thank you to Johanna Baez, Neil Bell, Ian Bowater, Matthew Hager, Andrea Moore, and the Justice Theatre Project. Speaking of the Justice Theatre Project, Every Brilliant Thing is playing in Raleigh. Every Brilliant Thing, written by Duncan McMillan with Johnny Donahoe, directed by Jay Chichula, and featuring Thaddeus Edwards. If you've been a longtime listener of Artist Soapbox, you'll recognize Thaddeus. He's been on the podcast several times and was featured in the Master Builder audio drama. I attended a rehearsal of Every Brilliant Thing, and I left feeling moved and inspired. See the show notes for links to tickets. Every Brilliant Thing is playing October 8th through 24th in Raleigh. All right, get your notepad ready to jot down the words and wisdom of Mimi Herman. You'll hear writing tips aplenty and Mimi reading two of her very well-chosen poems in this episode. Mimi has the incredible ability to combine compassion, craft, and play in her teaching and her writing. You'll hear her speak about writing in these extraordinary times and the value of taking a poetry nap. If you'd like a deeper poetry nap experience, Mimi Herman will be leading a poetry nap workshop at the North Carolina Writers Network 2021 Fall Conference, November 19th through 21st in Durham, North Carolina. Yep, you guessed it. The links will be included in the show notes. Mimi Herman is a writer and editor, Kennedy Center teaching artist, and co-director of Writeaways Writing Workshops in France, Italy, New Mexico, and online. Since 1990, she has engaged over 25,000 students with writing workshops. She is a Warren Wilson alumna and the 2017 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate and serves as a member of the AWP Board of Directors. She is the author of Logophilia and the Art of Learning. Her latest collection of poetry, A Field Guide to Human Emotions, is available from Finishing Line Press. And her novel, The Kudzu Queen, will be released from Regal House Publishing in 2023. Enjoy this episode. Hello, Mimi. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Tamara. Thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. We'll talk in a minute about your origin story as a writer and, and how your writing has evolved over time, but I would actually like to start with your writing. So can you read something for us? I'd love to, Tamara. Thank you so much. I would like to read a poem called The Visualizing Mind Has No Word for No from my first collection of poetry, Logophilia, published by Main Street Rag. So here we go. The Visualizing Mind Has No Word for No. Try not to think of a banana. Whatever you do, do not imagine a banana with its greeny yellow peel and firm flesh, or one that has succumbed 
to brown spots and a certain laxness of texture. Please, under no circumstances, imagine a banana, a single banana on your kitchen counter. Where there is also, coincidentally, not a piece of chocolate cake, thick with frosting, the last piece of chocolate cake, as alluring as a showgirl leaning against the backstage door, asking if you can give her a lift. Say to yourself, I will not eat that piece of chocolate cake, that last piece, I don't need it. And as soon as you've opened your mouth, it's gone, startling you with the swiftness with which each bite leaps onto the fork and is conveyed to your mouth to descend down some long, dark road that leads directly to your hips, where it will take up residence for a good long time, because morning after morning, you will remind yourself not to sleep in and will miss the gym, which is probably not a bad idea, since it gives you more time to tell your children not to touch the stove and to get out the salve that you'll surely need. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, that tickles me. (laughs) I love it, especially because it's such a great piece for audio. I also, in addition to these podcast interviews, I write and produce audio dramas. And so part of what we're trying to do is to invite audience members to add that internal visual landscape just by providing them with the words. So we're kind of provoking them to think of the banana. And with podcasts, I think we're inviting audience members to imagine what it's like for two people to sit across the table from one another and have this conversation. I love many things about what you wrote. One of the things that tickles me so much is just this playing with this idea of of the world that we can create for ourselves, almost against our will, right? We we just kind of come up with story and with visuals. Tell me why you wrote that poem. Oh, another great question. I used to teach at a girls' boarding school, which I don't recommend. Girls are definitely not nicer than boys. And we would have special (laughs) guests come into the wilds of central Pennsylvania where I taught at a school that shall remain nameless. And one of the women who came to speak to the girls was a visualization expert. And I'm kind of right on the woo-woo fence. I'm, you know, a little bit woo-woo and a little bit cynical. And so she really hit the mark for me because she was a visualization expert who worked with Olympic athletes. And she said the visualizing mind had no word for now. And it changed my life. It changed everything that I did. It changed how I taught. Because instead of telling kids not to do something, I think about what I'd like them to do instead or ask them what they could do instead. And it works. It just is the most common sense thing that I can think of. But I also think it's hilarious that you can't not think of something. So it's fun to tell people not to think of something and then watch their faces. The minute <laughs> I start the first line of that poem, every time I read it to an audience, I watch their faces and there's eye rolls because I can't help it. Right. That's a parenting trick too. You're, instead mm-hmm. of saying, don't run, don't run. It's walking feet, walking feet. But I'm really <laughs> glad that you reminded <laughs> That you reminded me of that because I don't think about that in terms of myself. You know what I mean? I think that's, well, that's what I say to a three-year-old, not that's what I say to a 36-year-old. And really, it still applies to us as human beings at any age. Absolutely. So back to you. Can you tell us how you came to be a writer, how you discovered that you are a writer? Well, 
for me, it's all about teachers, which may explain why I teach now. I was the shyest kid on the planet. Uh, If you look back at my school pictures, every picture I have glazed over eyes, like I'm about Mm -hmm. to cry because the photographer would say, smile, you're not smiling. And then I would feel like such a failure that I'd start to cry. And I never spoke up in class. And I had this teacher, Miss Stevens, in fourth grade at E.C. Brooks Elementary School in Raleigh. And she was she was magical. I mean, if you're old enough to remember, I think it was room 222. She looked a little like Karen Valentine with a straight, dark hair, center parted. And she was just kind. And she was the first teacher that had ever seen me, not just the first teacher. I think she was the first adult outside my home that saw me as a person. And she taught poetry, which, you know, now I know happens in fourth grade, but for me, it was all about Miss Stevens. And so she taught us how to do haiku and other kinds of poetry. And honestly, if she taught nuclear physics, I'd be a nuclear physicist right now because I was so in love with her that I just fell in love with poetry. So you add that to a tortured adolescence, lots of emotions, lots of words, very verbal family. And everything became a poem. Everything ended up on the page, in a journal, something. And then it started to feel like, oh, this is not just something I'm doing for me, for therapy. People like these poems, and they may have an audience. And what can I learn in the way of craft and skill? And so fast forward to... UNC, great writing teachers, a switch to fiction, and then Warren Wilson's MFA program and fiction there. And I've been writing fiction and poetry ever since. I love that story. Let's have some gratitude for Miss Stevens. <laughs> yeah. I've spent so much time trying to find her, but anybody who was mm. named Miss Stevens in, you know, what was it, 1972 is going to be really hard to find now. Well, I'm sure she feels all of the positive energy that is being sent to her because it's such a beautiful story. Thanks. Maybe she'll hear this. Maybe she will. Miss Stevens, if you're out there, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> I am curious about how has your writing evolved over time from sort of that beginning blossoming of the young poet to now? Looking back, what kind of evolution have you seen? Yeah. So for one thing, there was the switch to fiction. Again, it was all about the teachers because I wanted to study with Doris Betts at UNC and she only taught fiction. So I had to learn to write fiction and then discover that that felt comfortable too. She used to say that people were either fiction writers or poets, but rarely both. But I feel like I'm really comfortable with both and they do different things for me. For mm-hmm. me, poetry is about trying to understand how the world works. And for me, fiction is listening to a voice tell a story and then running around behind that person as fast as I can till I get the story on the page. So I think that's been a big change. I think the other biggest change was going from from seeing the writing as an extension of me so that if someone criticized the writing or critiqued the writing or had ideas to improve the writing, you know, it would bring back the kid who used to, you know, cry when she got her picture taken for the school pl- the school picture. And I would feel like a failure and I would be really upset. And now I revel in it. I love it when people look at something I've written. And as we say in Rightaway's workshops that I, I co-teach, when they look at it and they try to see what will help it be what it wants to be when it grows up, what is mm-hmm. that piece trying to do? And so the piece is no longer another body part. It's something I've made and so much of it happens in the revision. I'm a reviser 
by nature. And I'm an overwriter. I overwrite like crazy. I have a novel coming out in the spring of 23. And that novel was originally 680 pages when I completed a first draft. And I did something I call playing pickup sticks. Can I pull out this word, this phrase, this sentence, this character, this chapter, this subplot, and got a 680 page novel down to under 350 pages. So I took a book out of that book. Wow. And it's just such a pleasure to play with revising. I think I became much more of a writer who, who likes to play with writing and try for myself and for the people that I teach to make sure that it's play and not work, even though there's a deep amount of craft to it. Yeah. This idea of letting the work become what it what it's meant to be or what it what it yearns to be, that really resonates with me. I find it to be a much healthier relationship to the work. At this particular point, I'm not as afraid to cut away from something because I believe that that I can provide something else. You know what I mean? It's not, it's a more of an abundance mindset to writing than a scarcity mindset. It's like, I know that there are other stories. I know I have other things to tell. So if this one gets chopped up, it's not like that's all there is. You know what I mean? I don't have to, I don't have to clutch it because I can create something else. That has helped me to relax a little bit. That is a really great way to put it. I love that you're talking about it being healthier because I do think it's healthier. I'm certainly a lot healthier person than I was as a teenager. I think probably most of us are. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to cut things out and see what's beneath it. It's sort of like Michelangelo and the marble, you know, Mm. the sculptures there, he's just cutting away the parts that aren't the sculpture. And so for me, cutting things away and then seeing that what's left is even better is a joy. Yeah. It's an absolute pleasure. And, And I think the other thing for me about writing is I've come to see writing as a gift from the writer to the reader. And like the best gifts, it should partake of both the giver and the receiver. Mm-hmm. So I do think about audience a lot. I've thought for years that that a lot of poetry is sort of like the secret clubhouse. And you see this in published poems and you see this in poems written by teenagers where it's sort of like, I'm going to be as oblique as possible. And <laughs> if you don't know the secret password, then you can't get into my secret clubhouse. You are not worthy. What kind of gift is that? That's lousy. So I want to write poems and fiction that that engage people, that help people go, oh, wow, you know, that's exactly how I felt, but I never thought to say it, or I never knew how to say it, or, oh, this is a poem I want to print out and scotch tape to my study door so that the next time I lose someone or the next time I'm happy, I have this as a talisman. That's That's my goal, to give people things that they can use and reuse. I I like being Mm. of use as a writer. I love that so much. It's an interesting balancing act sometimes Mm -hmm. between spoon feeding an audience and also thinking that they can't get it and having a sort of adversarial relationship with the people who are reading (laughs) your work. Like if you don't understand it, it's your fault. You know, it's not my fault. And so I think that both of those things are taking us in the wrong direction especially when we're trying to form relationships with readers. And as you say, to be of use and kind of continue that writing as a touchstone through the years, which is a really beautiful idea. Thanks. I really do feel that way. I think of readers as really smart. I want to write for really smart people and really good people and bring out the smartness and goodness in them. 
mm-hmm. have have that writing speak to that part of them. Because even the smart, good people don't always recognize it in themselves unless they're treated that way. And that's right. what I try to do as a teacher with kids and with adults. And it's also what I try to do as a writer. And if I'm writing for somebody and I'm writing down to them, I'm wasting both our time. Speaking of time, I'm going to take a little bit of a turn because I do think this is all related. You and I were emailing prior to this conversation, and you mentioned that you were, quote, thinking about what writing can mean in extraordinary times like these. And I'm really curious to hear more about your thoughts about writing in these extraordinary times. Yeah. Bravo to anybody who's kept their sanity for the last year (laughs) and a half. This has been so horrifyingly difficult on so many levels. And as a teacher of writing, I believe that everybody's a writer. I believe that everybody can do any art form. There are things you may want to do more than others, but we can all do it. And so my job as a teacher is to draw out the writer in each of my students and figure out what their subjects are and how to teach them enough craft so that when they look at what they've written, they feel like, yeah, I said what I wanted to say the way that I wanted to say it. And it can carry that information to a reader. And sometimes I think about a piece of writing as a wheelbarrow and it's carrying meaning from Mm. your head and your heart to your reader's head and heart. And you're trying to move as fast as you can so that you can get that wheelbarrow to the other person, but wheelbarrow is kind of leaky. And so craft is what patches those leaks Mm. and technique. And those are the things that I can teach. And I think we all have a need to be heard and we all have a need to be seen and During times like these, that's even more important. And so what I want to do as a teacher of writing is to help other people be heard and seen. I mean, to be a a first listener for them and then to help them write so that they can share with others. And what I want to do as a writer is to help people see themselves in what I've written and to help people make it through. It's so hard to be alive right now. It's so, there's so much grief and so much fear and so much anger and we need to listen and we need to have places where we can listen. Yes, yes, absolutely. I love how this beautifully segues into the workshop that you are going to be leading at the North Carolina Writers Network's fall conference in November. And the title of your workshop is Poetry Nap. Would you tell us a little bit about that workshop and what inspired you to create it? Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't need a nap every day, (laughs) right? right? We all need those naps. So I can't even remember what made me create it in the first place. I've done this workshop so many times from like third grade through adults, teachers, lots of different people. And this is one of my very favorite things to do. So it's this basically this guided relaxation that turns into a guided visualization and you you kind of just relax so that you're awake but you're still hearing my voice I will talk you through it and then when you wake up you've got you've got the images you've got the ideas you've got the poem or it doesn't even have to be a poem it can be prose it just sort of takes you through so that you've got the piece because I think one of the hardest things about writing is what I call the blank page disease, where you're staring Mm -hmm. at a blank page and there's nothing there. And so with this, you get kind of a twofer, you relax and 
you got something to put on the page immediately the minute you open your eyes. <laughs> this one is about, well, know what? I'm not going to say too much, but it's about water. So there's a flow to it. But I've done other ones about other things so they can be focused on different subjects or different things to think about. And it always results in some of the best poetry I see. It's always about a persona poem. That's what my poetry naps are, although I suppose I could do them doing something else. And what I've discovered is that the writer comes through the persona in a way that is so much clearer than if you'd ask that person to talk about themselves. So it's it's a really quiet joy. And the readings at the end of the workshop are always wonderful. And I recently gave a poetry reading and somebody said, I just want to tell you, I took your workshop and I thought it was a little woo-woo at first, but I wrote this poem and here's where it got published. <laughs> and it just came out this week. It's sort of a, a no-fail way to write. To go back to what you were talking about at the very beginning, I also am half woo and half cynical. And so I think it's about dialing in the right amount of woo here. I have to confess that I definitely hit the sack when I'm stuck as a writer. I'll get in my bed and I'll lay down and the the objective is not for me to sleep. It is to relax and think about what I'm writing and is anything going to come. That's where it arrives. If I'm sitting at the computer, I can't always grind it out. But if I get in my bed for a little while and I have something close to me, a notebook or a phone or something like that, so that I can capture what I'm thinking, it almost always delivers for me. You know, 20 years ago, I would not believe that to be the case because there's so much pressure to be highly productive and have a high word, word count. So it seems that relaxation and writing would be in conflict as opposed to you know, supporting each other. So have you gotten resistance to this idea? I haven't gotten any resistance to it, but I can see how there would be. I love that you use the word grind because that's often how it feels, you know, like it is are coffee beans. And the only way you can come, come up with something useful out of them is to just grind them. But I don't think that's the most useful way to write. It is so hard to write. And I think anything that makes it easier and that allows the ideas to come is worthwhile. And once you get started, you'll keep going. You know, another thing that I love to do for myself, like a poetry nap is something that I walk people through. I talk people through. So I have never actually taken a poetry nap myself, sadly. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I walk and I walk in the woods. I walk in the woods with a friend and we talk and talk and talk and talk. But I also walk in the woods by myself. And that's when the ideas come from me. Like if I'm moving, I used to be a pretty serious swimmer. And when I would swim, the same thing would happen. If I'm moving, I like to say through liquid, because in North Carolina, you're pretty much, every time you're outside, you're moving through liquid with all the humidity. <laughs> but if I'm, if I'm moving and seeing things or, or in my mind as I'm moving, that's when the ideas come. And, and the poetry nap is part nap, part journey. And I think that's part of why it helps. It's not just that you kind of lie there. You're lying there and you're having a dream. Something's yeah. happening. It's an active engagement, but it's at a kind of at a different frequency. And it's, you know, our subconscious is so much part of, of our writing that if you close it out of the room while you're trying to write, you know, you're basically trying to write with a pencil stub. There's, there's, yeah. You're not going to get much out. I'm a big proponent for the walking shower is also, I'll get some good ideas in the shower or, you know, cleaning. 
moving around. It's some sort of distraction and kind of giving over again to this idea that it's not just something that I need to like push out of my brain or my body, but it's something that can float outside of me and I just have to like capture it with my little brain net. You know what I mean? Oh, I love that. Absolutely. So what would you recommend to somebody who might like to get a taste of a poetry nap, but they're unavailable to walk with you through it? Do you have a little mini tip that you could share? Well, as I said, a walk uh, often does a lot of the same thing. Another thing I really like is my sister some time ago told me about Insight Timer, this app, and it's for meditation, it's for yoga, it's for all sorts of things. And I love yoga nidra because it's like savasana without having to do all the work. You, you don't have to do the whole yoga class and then have the savasana at the end. You get you get the savasana right off the bat. And that is kind of a, a poetry nap, actually. And so on Insight Timer, there's this woman, Jennifer Piercy, who is amazing. And she does these sleep and waking yoga nidras. And I had this idea that there are people that are just born healers. Here's my woo-woo side, okay? my woo-woo with the arched eyebrow. So I had this idea that people, there are some people who are born healers and sometimes they become doctors or nurses or sometimes they become teachers or sometimes they become, there was a house cleaner I once knew who left every room spiritually clean as well as physically clean. I don't know what she did, but you'd walk in a room and it was like, there's more air in this room than there was before. And so Jennifer Piercy is in my mind, one of those healers And so she will walk you through this entire relaxation thing, much as I will do in the the poetry nap workshop. In her case, it lets you sleep or it lets you face your day waking more effectively. But I had this idea that it could be also really useful for, for writers. So, you know, working with her, listening to what she does on Insight Timer, or going to a yoga nidra class or something like that, anything like that. And I guess the simplest way that you could do it would be to just relax your body one piece at a time, Hmm. you know, squeeze it, squeeze your feet and relax them, squeeze your calves and relax them, squeeze your thighs and relax them. And maybe set a really, really quiet timer for 15 minutes on your phone. Just see what happens when you relax like that, when you kind of quiet all the clutter Right. Thank you so much for that suggestion. As you were talking about it, I was thinking about having to convince myself to do this type of relaxation. The way that I have to convince myself, and I'm curious if that if anybody else would feel this way, is that it it's an investment. It is part of the process. It will yield results. If I do this for 15 minutes and I contract and release parts of my body and I lay down on the floor and I let my mind go. I am serving my process. It is not a waste of time. It is not me indulging myself. You know, it is actually something that will that will aid me in what I'm trying to do. And so I always have to get myself over that hump of resisting. Like we never stop. We never, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And another way to think about it is as a writer, you're an athlete. And yeah. nobody would enter a game without warming up first. So you don't want to strain a brain muscle. You know, take a few minutes to warm up your brain before you start writing and you're going to play better. And I only have one brain muscle, so I really need it to not be strained. Exactly. (laughs) If that's out of commission, we're in trouble. Right, exactly. Mimi, I'm wondering if you could tell us 
what is next for you? And if you have some additional writing that you would like to share. Yeah, well, I'm so excited because as dark as these times have been, I've gotten some really great news. I had a collection of poetry, a newer collection of poetry published called A Field Guide to Human Emotions. And I'd like to read you a poem from that in a moment. And I have a novel coming out, Regal House Publishing, in the spring of 23. Field Guide to Human Emotions is coming out, or came out from Finishing Line Press. And Kudzu Queen, which is a novel that I adore. I'm so excited about. It's set in 1941, and it's a sassy girl named Maddie Lee Watson, who is mm-hmm. the protagonist and narrator. And there's a man who goes around the country promoting kudzu as this wonder plant, which is actually completely true. Kudzu was this amazing plant that farmers were convinced to plant, and the CCC planted it along railway embankments right around the time of the Dust Bowl so that the good soil wouldn't blow away. And, and it was this wonderful thing. And there were these men that went around the country promoting it and having kudzu festivals and sort of small town beauty queens. So Maddie <laughs> wants to be the kudzu queen, and she wants the kudzu king to fall in love with her until she discovers his dark side. Mm. and it brings him down in front of the whole town. So that's all I'm going to tell you about that. Anyhow, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about Field Guide and getting to share that with people. And I'm going to read you a poem from Field Guide. And thank you so much for allowing me to do this. I'm going to read you anxiety because heaven knows we are suffering from a lot of anxiety these days. I feel like that's kind of our way of being right now. So here we go. Anxiety. Anxiety sets its watch ahead by at least a minute, though often weeks. Anxiety is one foot in a concrete boot and the other trying to get away from someone who is not yet chasing it, but soon will be. Probably. Anxiety has an itchy WebMD trigger finger, which it diagnosed itself. Anxiety is all about the symptoms. If you meet anxiety on the street, be sure to say hello. Otherwise, it will spend all day wondering if it's done something to alienate you. Anxiety is the bastard child of terror and dithering. Abandoned by its father and raised by its mother, people mistake it for an idiot, but it knows more than you think. Anxiety will never intentionally deceive you, though it has been known to be mistaken. Thank you so much, Mimi, for reading that. It actually has lessened my anxiety. So (laughs) just hearing it is really, what what a relief to have that outside of me and personified. Thank you so much for this conversation and for the work that you do. I can't wait to read what is coming next for you. And we can talk again in 2023, if not sooner. (laughs) Tamara, thank you so much for having me on your show. I have loved it. It's been such a delight talking with you. And thanks so much to everybody who's out there listening. I hope someday to meet you in person when all this passes. One more thing before we go. As of this recording, we are only 9% funded for the Jesus Pancake audio series. And we only have 10 days left. If you would like to help us make wonderful audio delights for your ears, please see the link in the show notes to the Indiegogo campaign. Thanks so much.